Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this program are available free of charge. Your support makes a difference. If you want to show some love to the Other People Podcast, you can do so at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person and just one person. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am uh, reporting to you from Los Angeles, California. I'm just back in Los Angeles after being on vacation last week. I was in uh, Upper Michigan for a week with my entire family. We were all under one roof. There was 15 of us. There were, uh, what is it, eight kids? I think that's correct. Eight kids, seven or eight adults. It was it was chaotic. It was like running a daycare center for a week, but we were in nature. I don't know. It was exhausting. It was fun. The kids had a good time. We did some boating. We were out, I was out on a kayak. I rented a mountain bike. I would get up really early. Like, this is how crazy I am. I would get up before dawn on vacation just so I could have some time <laughs> to uh, to just not have to deal with chaos. Like, the house was quiet. I would sneak out. There was this bike path. I would go for a ride in the woods. I would take pictures of barns. I would put, I would put them up on Twitter. I don't know if you saw that. It made me realize I'm at the stage of life now where I take pictures of barns. When I'm on vacation, that's what I do. So we made it back yesterday. A lot of flying. It could have been worse. Our flights were good. They were on time. No big delays or, you know, nothing uh, terrible. Good weather. There was a little bit of chop. Isn't that what they call it? There was some chop up at cruising altitude. We had to figure out, like, what altitude to fly at so that we could get a smooth ride. But it was fine. And I uh, just feel like really extra tired after vacation, which is, I think, a normal set of circumstances when you're traveling with young children. But they had a good time. That's the most important thing. It was fun to kayak. I think that was probably the highlight. I got to kayak on a river. 
I had my son, whose name is River, sitting in my lap. He really liked that. Got to like, you know, put his hand in the water. There were some fish. There were some bullfrogs, that kind of thing. I saw three deer. Got to see some animals, some nature. Went out on a big lake in a boat. We were going to go fishing, but then like my sister and her kid got like seasick on a lake. It's like, you know, my family's a lot of work. The only person in my family who's even remotely into nature is me. And that includes my parents, the kids. Like no one's really into it except for me. I feel like an alien in my own family. And yet we're up in this place that is just nothing but natural splendor, all kinds of things to do outside. And it's not that, that, you know, people did participate. They got on the boat, they went in the kayaks, they tried, but it's not like an active situation. And then I feel like I'm pretty good at travel planning, which I've talked about before on this program. And so I think a lot of the decision-making processes, there's Twiggy. She has to like shake every time I'm on the microphone. Like, you know, how dogs like shake their, their ears or what do they do? You know what I'm talking about? They shake. Not like shake hands, but like shake their bodies. Is there a word for that? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, I'm very tired. I'm very excited to have Poe Ballantyne on the program today. He's got a new novel out from Hawthorne Books. Poe is a guy that I've been... Uh, reading and reading about online for more than a decade, it seems like. His name has been on my radar for a long time. I'm very excited that I had a chance to meet him. He came over here with his son and his mother. That was a first for the Other People podcast. His mother and his son, lovely people. Uh, We had some coffee, got to talk to them a bit. They got to meet my family. And then Poe and I came back into the garage. We sat down and we had what I think is an excellent an unusually candid conversation that I'm very excited to share with you right now. So let's get to it. This is Poe Ballantyne. His novel, which I forgot to name earlier, is called Whirl Away. It's out there now from Hawthorne Books. It's called Whirl Away. It's a novel. This is Poe Ballantyne. Uh, born in Denver in uh, 1955, and my pop uh, got a teaching offer in San Diego for $200 more a year, so... We moved out to San Diego in 1958. They've been there ever since. I left Southern California long ago. I couldn't afford it. And I wanted to, you know, see what the world looked like and, you know, investigate this place called America. 
So you left. So childhood was Southern California. Right. Were you surfing? Like, was it that kind of... I was a beach nut. I surfed, mostly body surfed, but I spent my... I lived on the beach and spent my summers immersed and... Was it better back then? Like, it was less well, crowded. Yeah, of course it was. Yeah, of course it was. But, you know, that's just a point of contrast for me. I mean, if you come out here now, you... I mean, it, you can't really appreciate what... It, I suppose you could abstract what it was like to have less people... But yeah, that's one of the reasons I left. I mean, I said you could have it, and I couldn't get to the beach anymore. I just couldn't get there. It was, and then when if I could, there was no place to park, and right. you know, and there's all these signs up. You know, don't do this. No frisbees. No glass. No, no walking on two feet. You know, and on and on and on. So, yeah, it was just it, I became disenchanted. So did now was it just you? Were you an only child? No, my sister. Uh, my sister still lives here and. She lives in the same neighborhood I grew up in, which is La Mesa, San Carlos, La Mesa. Okay. And and what kind of kid were you? Were you showing... I always like to ask people this. Like, were you uh, early on one of these people who was saying, I'm going to be a writer, and you always had your nose in a book, or did it come to you later? Oh, no. I, was, I always had my nose in a book. I don't think it occurred to me that uh, people wrote books um, until... I don't know. Maybe I was in seventh grade or so, and I read a book. I said, hmm, somebody actually wrote this thing. That's pretty cool. Maybe I could do that, too. And, I, you know, whenever I wrote something, I would get a good grade on it. So, And people would notice me for once. So, yeah, I think it was sort of bent in that direction early. Like, what kind of kid were you? Were you socially uh, good? Like, were you somebody who had a lot of friends, or were you like... Uh, I, yeah, well, I hit that, you know, like most of the kids of my generation, I was a pretty straight uh, flyer. And then, you know, and then I got tangled up in that counterculture um, fallout. Yeah, because yeah. you were born in 1955. So I you, was born at 55, You yeah. would have been, like, what, 16 years old would be, like, 1971, right? So, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah. just, like, post-60s. Well, not, see, I didn't catch the hippie stuff. I just caught all the, you know, the, the unglamorous part, you know. The hangover. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, it was just, but, but, but we were all, it was all coming down anyway. We knew that. We were all going to die. Um, so we just had a big party, you know. And then all of a sudden, you know, we didn't die, and and then you have to kind of pick everything up. And what do you mean we were all going to die? Like nuclear? Like that? The, oh, that and the environmental stuff, the social. I mean, the just absolute enemy in the streets, all the great leaders being dropped, and you know, it just wasn't going to last. I mean, it might have, it would have retranslated to some way, but the America that I knew was done for. Isn't it? Fun? I mean, it's interesting to hear you say that because I feel like the chaos that we're living in now politically. You know, in a, in a lot of ways, in a lot of important ways, is, is without precedent in this country. But it's not like this is the first time America's gone through upheaval. And, right. And think with the Civil War. I mean, it's, oh, this country's it's... gone through a, a lot of uh, catastrophes and has oh, yeah. weathered them. But I, I don't know. I, yeah, I was just I'm reading a book, a fantastic book, a forgotten book by Frank Fenton, who was a screenwriter. And uh, anyway, he's talking about L.A. in the 40s and World War II, but the blackouts. Blackouts here, you know, and I presume they were the same thing that Britain had, but Britain was actually being attacked, you know, from the air, and we weren't. We had been attacked, but they had blackouts. So. What is it, like the electricity went out? Yeah, everything. Everybody had to, you know, go indoors. The sirens would would sound. This this is absolutely forgotten. Yeah, uh, and I never even that, heard of it. It's not that long ago. Well, it was the first time I'd been acquainted with it. What was the what was the cause? I presume that they thought that uh, attacks were imminent 
because they'd been attacked once, why wouldn't they be attacked again? You right. know, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, you, what, what, especially during wartime, you get into, you go into these fear modes where anything is possible, and any story that's told about some sort of malevolent force is not only understood but interpreted in its most acute fashion. So everybody's on the, you know, when when after nine eleven, I mean, for for years people were walking on eggshells. I, I, I remember was, that too. I remember like, oh, what's going to happen next? Uh, we were take, I was taking the bus uh, around, and I was getting uh, uh, inspected, and they were looking. You know, they would pull my luggage, and they, they, they nobody cares about bus travelers, but they were alert to to to, to every possibility. Then yeah. we were just frightened to death. Yeah. Of, of the enemy, which had been, you know, which is always aggrandized to the advantage of those who want to control us. Yeah, fear is a good, uh, fear is a good control agent. Yes, fear and division, self-interest. And, well, I'll uh, tell you, when you talk about blackouts, I keep thinking about that because there's all these stories coming out about, like, the Russians and, and like, other nefarious forces hacking our power grid. Right. And I think about Los Angeles and what would happen if suddenly they shut the power off in a city this size for an extended period of time. And at first you're like, oh, it's just the power. It'll come back on. Right. But it's like, what if it didn't for two weeks? Right. Yeah. And they're strategic. There's just a few strategic grids. That's all they'd need to do to disable. Well, same thing with the water supply. You know, I mean, it'd be very easy to, if somebody was that nefarious to, to, to disable a, a vast population of people. And it's happened before. We're more inclined toward order than we'd like to believe. We're just fear, but we're, we really are motivated by fear more than anything else. It's amazing how fast this, this uh, conversation shifted from your like dreamy Southern California <laughs> childhood. To, like, yeah. There's going to be blackouts. We well, need to get a go bag. Yeah. We're worried about the world and, and it doesn't look like it's going to hold together. You know, the more, the longer you've lived, I don't, how old are you? I'm 42. 42. Okay. Well, I remember the sixties, you know, I didn't understand it, but it really was, and you know, it was pure chaos, and it was a war that made no sense that I was going to have to be shipped off to. Right, and the kids were already coming back crazy without legs in boxes. Um, so, and you had this guy Nixon, who even people who don't understand history realize was um, a, a real evil uh, personality, um, and I, you know. I, we got through him, and we got through, and Johnson was also terrible. I, I don't want to recite, but it just, by comparison, this, this, this Trump decade, and I know it's annoying, and I know we're always on the brink of fascism, uh, and we may already be married. I mean, the corporation has married the state, so I, technically we are, this is a fascist society, but it's not brown shirts marching down the street. But anyway, I'm just not as worried about, uh, I think the American myth can defeat most of what, the clowns that are that are given to us, but I think Trump is much more clownish than than dangerous. I, I, Nixon was dangerous. Bush, uh, especially the the younger one, was. Yeah, I mean, he was pernicious. Well, I mean, the, the, if there's one thing, because I feel like Trump is dangerous in certain senses, but if there's one thing that heartens me is that he's also pretty. He can be pretty bumbling and stupid and yeah. open. He makes a lot of unforced errors. He's more like Gerald Ford, really. And Gerald Ford was evil, <laughs> but uh, but he was, you know, he got in his own way. I was thinking of him like falling down like the uh, the steps and remember the Chevy Chase thing? Yeah, yeah. with the, the needle in his arm. Yeah. Sure, you remember that. I mean, you know, yeah, I've, I've watched the reels. Okay. Um, so, so back to Southern California growing up, 
being a bookish kid. And, and I think a fairly common story for writers is that you were getting recognized for being good at it from a young age and yeah. probably had some encouragement from teachers. Right. What about your folks? Like, did, were your folks book people? Mm-hmm. Like, did you grow up in a house full of books? Or, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, my father was a big reader. He had a, a library that I was welcome to. And, uh, the, and, and they steered me. I didn't realize it. For instance, I had to go to bed at 8.30 at night, and all the other kids got to stay up and watch Rat Patrol and stuff. And they would say, yeah, I stayed up till midnight. And, <laughs> but I had to go to bed at 8.30. And, uh, but if I had a book in my hand and I was sitting in bed, they'd let me stay up as long as I wanted. And also I was allowed to go to the public library, take the bus downtown to the public library, which was a great reward because that was not only a place to read, I mean – that was the storehouse of knowledge at the time. There was no internet or anything like that. So every, all knowledge was contained in that building. And I wanted to have a, I wanted to have a, a stab at it, but, uh, it was also adventure downtown, you know? Sure. And downtown so, San Diego. Yeah. Downtown San oh. Diego with all the sailors and the porno palaces and the hookers. And was that what it was like? Was it, was it more, oh, was yeah, it, it rougher was a wild, back then? It was a very wild place. Yeah. Because it's, it's like a military town right, in a lot of right. respects. There's a lot of Navy, right? Right. And yeah. Camp Pendleton's just up the road. Right. So that's Marines, I think. That's right? Marines, yeah. So there's a huge military contingency in San Diego. I always have a hard time wrapping my head around exactly what it is, but it feels like military, surf, uh, retirees. Brainless. Yeah, vapid. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Oh, it's awful. Uh, you know, I mean, it really, it'd still crush your skull if you're not careful. But it's so beautiful. Well, that's what everybody says. And then the conversation's over. Yeah. So you're from San Diego. It's beautiful. Yeah, that's it. That's it. The conversation's over. Yeah, but there's like a menace. Like in Orange County, I feel like has some of that weird, yeah. like, there's a little weird menace underneath that like beautiful, like surface level uh, veneer. And I, there was a podcast... I don't know if you ever listened to true crime podcast, but there was one called dirty John. You ever hear of that? It's about like, it was like a true crime story about this guy who seduced this woman in orange County. And he turned out to be a criminal, but he put on this show that he was like this doctor, mm. basically a total imposter. Mm. And he infiltrated himself into this woman's life. She had kids from pri- you know, previous marriages or whatever. And, uh, it just, it was perfect to me. Cause I was like, Oh, okay. This is like the noir of this eternally sunny, oh, yeah. smiley, you know, it's like where Disneyland is. Sure. But it, it just was very satisfying to me as someone who knows that place a little, you know, a little bit to see the noir aspect that I, you could always feel, but right. you, you never, ne- you never necessarily see right. made explicit. Yeah. It's, it's very difficult to write about this part of the world. There's really not very many good, accurate portrayals of Southern California. Most of them are, you know, they're tainted by celebrity or, or the romance or the, you know, the, the legends that surround uh, all the institutions that the beach and the movies and all the rest of that stuff, the orange groves. But Frank Fenton's book, A Place in the Sun, which has nothing to do with the movie. And Frank Fenton was a name of an actor, but this guy wrote a, a realistic portrayal of Southern California and the emptiness that lies, the, the dreams that, that come here fresh and just sort of rot. And, uh, the, the, you know, the, every place is difficult and, and all dreams die very easily, but you've got more of a concentration of that here. Well, and I think one of the best, the, one of the best ways I've ever heard, uh, Los Angeles described is by starting, starting out talking about how unknowable it is. Mm-hmm. Like that's what, that's the defining characteristic of this place. Right. I've lived here for almost 20 years and I'm still like, where the hell am I? Right. 
it just feels like this, you can't wrap your head around it. Right. And, and in some ways I kind of like that. Right. Because it's, uh, you know, it's like eternally new and unknowable exactly. and mysterious, but it's also a little haunting. It's amorphous. <laughs> I don't think, you know, I think you could, you probably serve yourself well by not trying to describe it. I don't, I don't really think you can do it, but to represent it as, as, as some sort of, uh, knowable commodity, uh, I think is misleading people because you can come in, you can come in here and land and win just like you can go into Vegas and just drop a quarter in and, and, uh, and have things suddenly go your way. But more often than not, you're going to get lost and you're going to get uh, thrown aside and um, probably torn to bits here and there. <laughs> more so than another place, you know. Yeah, it's tough. These ple- like these big uh, cultural capitals, New York, Los Angeles, yeah. San Francisco. It's just it, more competitive, more people, right. more money at stake. Well, it's more ambition, I think, really, especially because we... Uh, the, the conversation always comes up. I lived in Los Angeles for a while for a very, very brief period of time. Growing up in San Diego, I disliked Los Angeles because it was everything that we didn't want San Diego to become, which was smoggy and crowded and unfriendly. And it became that. But um, um, the, it's, it's just interesting to think that uh, these huge cosmopolitan um, areas can be so starkly different. And I think what separates them is ambition. People go to Cal- uh, to San Diego because it's beautiful. End of conversation. And so they could just, tr- even if they're, I mean, this is a very well-educated, largely uh, affluent group of people. But, you know, the brain just switches off as soon as you hit, uh, you know, hit a certain section of town. I don't know what it is. Because people aren't interested in becoming stars or stand-up comedians or actors or f- as a general rule. Whereas when you come into L.A., you're ready to play. So you've got that uh, that energy and you've got, but it also increases all the other, you know, parts that make uh, coexistence difficult. Right, right. So, you're uh, a teenager in San Diego. You're experiencing the kind of uh, post '60s hangover. Does that mean like you were, were you partying a lot? Were oh, yeah. You, you got into all that. Oh yeah. Excessive. Yeah. Problematic. Did you have to? Yeah. Like, you had to cut yourself off. Yeah, I got stuck in the methamphetamine thing, and the free, I was freebasing too. Um, yeah, and I, I really tumbled for a long time, and uh, but the whole time I was sort of holding out because I knew I was going to be a great writer, and I was taking notes and stuff like that. It was all futile, but I had that thing to hold on to where there, all, there was a lot of kids around me who didn't, you know, who just got pulled completely under. They had nothing to tether them. Right. Wow. And, uh, and, re- and real no social focus either. I mean, there's a period in America where you just, you know, you just did something, you know, whether it was the farm or... Or uh, you know your dad's job at the factory, or wh- whatever it was, you were you were attached to something. But then we just became dispersed, and our our, our areas of interest. Uh, so anyway, with me, uh, I had that thing to hold. I was about twenty-seven or twenty-eight, I think, and I came crawling home from another defeat, um, all messed up on drugs with the crack pipe in my uh, you know my luggage, and um, and I just realized that it was now or never. It was too late, really. It was too late to start, but I I couldn't go back in time, so you had to start where you are. I started, and that was really to my benefit because the whole time I was reading, the whole time I was meeting people, the whole time I was traveling, the whole time I was fairly positive about my existence uh, or optimistic about I don't know some weird way, maybe genetic or something like that. But I came from a good supportive family that certainly helped. That helps a lot. Really does. You know, if you don't have that, you're starting behind the eight ball. Uh, but 
when it comes to literature and excess, and I'm sure you probably were reading writers who had traveled that road as well. Like I think people who wind up in circumstances of excess, a lot of times gravitate towards that kind of art. You know, we can sometimes lionize these people in our minds, like the heroes of excess or whatever. But, um, the question I have is having a literary bent and having literary ambitions from a young age, recognizing that this was the thing that you wanted to pursue. Was there an element of your drug abuse that you were thinking to yourself, well, this is material. Like I'm acting out some story. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, sure. I feel like sometimes when I, uh, you read like military fiction or book, you know, books about, uh, that, you know, war, war novels or whatever. I sometimes think to myself, like, I wonder if they joined the force sure. because they were looking for right. a great book, you know, like, would yeah. you do something like that as a way of trying to access like really like a difficult and visceral ex- like life experience that would, sure. you could then mine. Like, was that a part of your calculation? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think there's in the same vein, people like Joseph Wambaugh, you collected police experience. There's lots of, I'm sure people who have their eyes on writing legal thrillers, uh, who get law degrees and some experience in court before they could escape that miserable life. And, and write effectively about it because there's no way that you can write a good legal thriller if you don't know the ins and outs. And the same thing with being a cop. For me, I always had this sort of... Um, I never did anything that I thought would be fake, you know? So I never... I, even though I lived close to Canada and I went to Toronto, I never went to Montreal. Where did, where did you go? Like, what is your? You said you were traveling a lot. So in these, like, quote-unquote, lost years of your 20s, mm-hmm. you leave Southern California. Right. Did you go to college? Oh, yeah, many times. <laughs> so tell me about that, like your educational track and then where you went after you got out. Or... I went to junior college. They called it junior college at the time, community college for, you know, I don't know, a term or two. And I just completely lost interest. I was smoking pot and distracted by, you know, lots of, you know, uh, you know trivial stuff. Uh, extremely undisciplined. Uh, and then I, you know, I took a trip, uh, a hitchhiking trip to uh, what I thought would be Europe, but it ended up being New Orleans where I ended up, you know, broke. And um, that's, a, that's a good place to sober up. Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> great for me. I, uh, I, you know, I mean, I really learned a lot there and I learned most importantly that I didn't want to live on the street again, you know? So the next trip I took, I made sure that there was enough money to get to my destination and, and enough money to uh, to b- get a room before I got a job. And so you were homeless in New Orleans? Uh, yeah, I lived on the street for just a month or so before I turned tail for home. You know, I, I would get whipped and I'd come back home and I'd stay for a while to recover. And then after a while, especially in my late 20s and then on into my 40s, I became almost like a career drifter. I got good at it. I saw very late that this was actually the interesting stuff in my life. It looked like failure to me. Why would I want to divulge or describe this as something? Cause I was going to write something that was important, you know, but then I realized that my failure was, or, or, you know, at least my attempts, not necessarily my failure, but my striving for, uh, a, a, you know, some kind of integrity, a good place to live, sanity, all these things in the face of uh, poverty and, things not working out at, at, all, at all, as I'd hoped, uh, really struck a uh, resonant chord with readers, which I didn't expect to happen. But now I understand it. So there was a period in which I became sort of a, 
And that might, but I never, you know, I, uh, as far as your question about get, uh, gathering experience just to write about, I never did that. I, I, I was not, I'm not interested in, you know, I could see somebody, okay, here's my next book. What's it going to be about? Well, I just won't use the word surprise. <laughs> and then the whole book will be about that. And I'll go, oh, well, that's really kind of not very interesting. And so I just thought, well, I'll do exactly what I want to do. I'll do my best. I'll go to the place I want to go. And then if there's a story there, if there's a person I meet or, or, or if there's a situation that happens or if I fall off a bridge or if I get my leg stuck behind my head or whatever it is, then that'll be, uh, you know, t- uh, uh, an organic part of, of the story that I want to tell. Have you ever fallen off of a bridge? Um, uh, not to my recollection. <laughs> I like that you had to actually had to think about that. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been in so many. I fell into a grave. I fell into a grave one time and I did fall uh, I was on the verge I was in the Virgin Islands and we were extremely drunk and I was saying some uh, heinous things to some uh, some tourists and uh, do you remember what you were saying oh it was awful okay it was really get, awful. like get out basically no 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 they were attractive women and I was just being really insensitive you know? okay in the t- in the time that it was allowed I don't ever do anything like that anymore uh, but I'm married and old so <laughs> But no, there was a, I don't know, it was a car was, we, my friend and I were headed back to the, the little hut we lived in, and, uh, and a car was coming my way, our way, and for whatever reason, I decided to dive into the bushes, I don't, and I fell off of something and really hurt my leg, but I don't think it was a bridge, so those are the only two. But you fell into a grave. I did fall into a grave when I was in Colorado Springs, yeah, I was living in Colorado Springs, and we were drinking Everclear. It was the first time I'd ever had Everclear, which is just like pure alcohol yeah it's a like grain alcohol right? yeah it's grain alcohol it's like 180 proof or whatever uh whatever 100 percent alcohol it'll kill you it's great to drink that at altitude by the way if you're going to drink everclear do it at like a mile high well i was in colorado springs so we're actually a little higher than denver there <laughs> right but uh, yeah and then we ended up in the graveyard and and i fell into a fell into a grave and was there a body in there it was funny no 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 Oh, just like a dug hole yeah okay it was for the you know the next day i guess I don't really remember the whole thing clearly, but it was hilarious. You're like, yeah, it works. Just <laughs> testing it out. You're all clear. Uh, so, okay. So you would go out, you would get banged up, you would come home. Yeah. That was the pattern. Initially, initially, yeah. Until I figured it out, you know. So New Orleans, Virgin Islands, uh-huh. Colorado Springs. Yeah, those were early trips. Okay. You also mentioned uh, being up towards Canada. Well, I lived in Niagara Falls, New York, and we would often go to Canada for the 5% beer and the strippers and uh, the easy women there, as the Canadians were coming down here for easy women. Uh-huh. So, but there weren't any easy women. I mean, there you... <laughs> That's usually a myth. Yeah, but I never went to Montreal because I didn't want to go to Montreal. I said, well, you know, I mean, the, the temptation would be, well, you could write about Montreal. You know, I mean, you could say something about Montreal. You could say you'd been there. I said, no, because I don't want to go to Montreal. I, I do want to go to Montreal. Yeah. Why do well, I, I want to go to Montreal? I would like to now, but I wasn't interested in that. We went to Toronto. Oh, yeah. I like Toronto, too. Yeah, like Toronto's that. fantastic. I've been there several times, but I still yet have not been to uh, Montreal. Yeah, for some reason, I feel the call of uh, Montreal. Huh. And it even rhymes. I, yeah, I think it's the... Uh, Maybe it's the, the 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 francophone aspect where it sort of feels like a foreign oh, yes. country. Right. It's got some charm. Sure. Some Frenchness. Yes. But it's brutal. The cold is. The winters are pretty oh, pretty heavy. It, oh, is it bad? Well, I don't know if there's any except for maybe the West Coast. I don't think you're going to get a lot of balmy weather up there. No, I'm just I'm thinking I'll go in the summer. But I'm Niagara thinking. Falls was. I mean, that was winter. 
it would snow in July there, you know. I mean, it, and there was nine feet of dirty snow on the ground for 10 months out of the year. I'm exaggerating, but it's pretty cold there oh. off that lake. Uh, Why did you end up in Niagara Falls? I had a friend who I'd met in Colorado Springs who I'd cooked with at the Broadmoor Hotel, and we got along very well. And uh, he went to cooking school. He went to the Culinary Institute in Hyde Park, got himself a job, uh, got himself a job as a chef, big deal, in this dead town. I mean, Niagara Falls was like depression, sad. During the early 80s, you know, all the... Uh, all the Car companies uh, that 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 town relies on had you know had gone into decline along with all the satellite companies that provided things like that you know the people who built radiators and the chemical companies and so on and so forth and that was the time of Love Canal and some you know abject environmental stuff and people were moving out of there and selling their houses for a nickel jumping off the waterfall yeah exactly <laughs> it's right and, there it's a nice it's yeah a, I lived right next to the waterfall. Um, in a, in a dilapidated old house. I wrote about it in a terrible story called The House of Spiders, but I, I think I accurately portrayed that. It was like three uh, three tenants, and I called it House of Spiders because every time I came home, the whole under the whole underside of the place had been taken over by these giant spiders, and there was the webs were so thick you couldn't get through. And Could you hear the waterfall? Oh, yeah. So it was just like roaring. Oh, you. yeah, and I could cross right over to Goat Island, um, you know, and I did often. I went over to Goat Island and, you know, what Goat Island's like down at the Goat river? Island is the is the American side where you you could you could cross the Niagara River and you're on that island and there are the falls. Okay. It's one way of observing the falls. I'm not exactly sure how many there are. I didn't do it in a touristy way. Sure, you were local. Uh, yeah. How long were you there? Uh, I was there for a year and a half, and my friend got to he just needed a cook. He said, "Come on out," and I was having a terrible time. I was working at a was working in San Diego at a chemical warehouse, and I was. Uh, you know, addicted to methamphetamine. That's and a rough one. I was getting close. I was getting really close, and I was having an affair with a. Uh, it was just awful. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, but it was escape, and they didn't have any methamphetamine there. Uh huh. Because I, I was out. You know, you could outstrip it in in the early '80s. It was only in pockets. Now it's you know taking over whole it's everywhere you go. It it destroyed my neighborhood, and it's 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 destroying whole states now. I mean, Indiana is like. I think that that's where I that's where I grew up. Really, and I'll tell you, I read a book. Did you read a book called Methland? There no, but a, I've heard about it. Yeah, it's like a nonfiction book, and I was just fascinated by the epidemic, and read it. I like books like that, and I just wanted to try to understand it better. And the book sort of ties the rise of the meth epidemic to the deterioration of the uh, middle class and working class uh, of the United States. Yeah where you had people who were working factory jobs getting paid X per hour. Right. And then suddenly those jobs get shipped overseas or they're, they're in shorter supply so they can pay people less. Right. And in order to make ends meet, you got to take on a second job. Right. So then you're working like 18 hour days. Right. You're fucking tired. Right. Somebody gives you math. You can work all day. Well, and you have purpose. You have suddenly have this sort of, I don't know. Have you ever tried that, uh, that, uh, no, I've never gotten into don't, it. Yeah, don't do that. I don't know why people do it. It's also, I, I wrote a, an essay called Methamphetamine for Dummies, which was <laughs> my angle on the whole epidemic is, is a good word you use because I th it, it strikes me as more of a functioning as a disease than it does as an actual drug because so many people, they don't even seem to volunteer for it. They just seem to catch it. 
You know, it just makes no sense. You can see what's happened to these people, and yet you participate in that. Right. And you get pulled right down into it. But back in your day, like when you were doing it, like there wasn't maybe as much public, you know, I guess you could see it in your real life, but there wasn't as much publicity. No, no, I, no, I didn't understand what, what the end looked like. Yeah. I started to see the people around me, you know, their teeth were falling out, their patches of hair, they were losing patches of hair. Uh, they had lost their sensibility. Um, they had lost their, their whole ground, really. But it took a while to understand that thing because I had not seen the full cycle, and now I understand it fairly well. But anyway, so I escaped to Niagara Falls where there was no methamphetamine, but all of a sudden the, the people were freebasing, and, so, and, and I worked at a bar. I was a bartender where one of the guys dealt, and they always had the, 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 the party going, and so I got sucked down into that. I wrote about that, too. Yeah. And then so you leave Niagara Falls? Yeah, uh, I was there for a year and a half, and I went to, I think I went to the Virgin Islands after that, because I knew that... You're like, I want to warm up. I'm freezing my ass off. All the things were there. It was paradise, and I wanted to get away from the confines of civilization, which was nothing but, uh, for me, it was nothing but um, misery and... uh, I mean, the, the thing had been corrupted, and so I wanted to just return to the forest and live a simple life in a hut and have a you know a little hammock and fish right and of course i got my ass kicked uh, again you know because i ran into all these other things that i hadn't anticipated you get to, everybody has their paradise lesson yeah paradise is not the weather right <laughs> right well no and it's also like trying to escape oneself by changing geography yeah. it doesn't work no <laughs> no it's still you yeah and actually you 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 compound the problem usually by moving because then you have to start all over, yeah. and then you have to find out who the bad people are and the good people are, and you have to get another job, and then you have to deal with, you have to work your way up when before you'd made. I don't know. Yeah. So, but you could, but at least you got to spend some time in the Virgin Islands. You get some cool experiences. Yeah, and I understand what you know. I mean, I, I've had my lessons. I've got, I've gotten these all were essential. This is not something that should have been avoided because I read a book or some wise man came along and said you must not do this. I've, I've learned, you know, I've learned a lot about life and, you know, hard school type stuff. But we all do. Like, it's funny that you say that because you think back on your life and you think about the mistakes you've made. You think about the tough times you've gone through. And I say this, uh, about everybody, just human beings. Uh, I can sometimes feel like, man, like, like, is this all pre-programmed? I just had to go through this stuff. Like whatever my particular set of sufferings are. Or is, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Like sometimes I feel like it's faded or other times I'm like, am I actualizing this? Have things I done? Could I have turned left instead of right? Or yes. is it all, you know, I, what's well, that causality questions in Niagara, but I, I don't worry too much about that. Yeah. I think it free will. I, I believe in free will and, and, and it doesn't matter if it, if I can prove it or not because I believe in it, but I don't know what the point would be if there wasn't free will. And uh, I see, yeah, there's a book I read. I've read some books where they're like, yeah, free will. It's actually. They've done studies where, like, if you make decisions, the decision's actually already been made in your brain. The signal's been sent before, you know. Right. I I can't speak about it cogently, but I remember it sort of freaked me out because I was like, well, then what's the point if it's all just happening? And, you know, I think think you have to ask yourself that question right there. Yeah. Because if it's all just a machine, which is, which a lot of people would like to reduce it to, then that would make sense. But it doesn't look like a machine to me. You think you, I think you got to just for the sake of having a healthy, an enjoyable life. You got to believe in free will. Yeah. You got to believe you have some agency. Yeah. Otherwise, sure. like, uh, what are you going to do? You're just going to sit there, right? 
And that doesn't sound like causality to me. I mean, so why are you sitting there? If if everything's been determined, then why are you sitting there and so miserable? <laughs> could you be possibly, could your mood be improved? And could your life be improved if you just got up off your ass and did something constructive? I mean, what? where's the causality in that? Yeah. I suppose you can explain it. I think you can explain that thing on a minimal level, like I drink water because I'm thirsty. But when you get it to the more complicated scenarios, then it's, I think it doesn't calculate as well. So the Virgin Islands... You're spearfishing? What are you doing? You uh, I did some of that, but I wasn't I wasn't cut out for it. Yeah, Is it like I, Tom Hanks in uh, that movie? Where yeah, Castaways. Yeah. Uh, I never got a chance uh, to, to, to apply myself to the wilderness. That was my plan. I never got a chance to do that because I was living with a couple of derelicts. Um, a, a best friend of mine who'd just sort of gone off the rails and his... Um, let me think of a nice word to say. I can't say a nice word about her, so we'll just just leave it at that. But anyway, I became the breadwinner. I quickly became the breadwinner. I first of all, I had money when I landed because you'd been cooking. No, I had just had money when I land. Well, yeah, I had had I'd accumulated. Actually, I'd worked at the Catamaran Hotel before I in San Diego. There's a jazz. It used to be a jazz venue in Pacific Beach, and I worked there. I lived on the beach. I can't remember the order of the events. But anyway, so I went to the Virgin Islands, and I'm staying on the east side of the island where there's no transportation, there's nothing. And I had to get a job. Uh, so I got a job at the Rockefeller Resort. It was the Rockefeller Resort at the time, cooking breakfast. And so I was the breadwinner. And it took me two hours to get to work and two hours to get home. And the car broke down, and I had to walk 11 miles through the jungle. And I never had time to apply myself to the wilderness. I spent the whole time... It was it was the same life I had left, except for it, 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 the, the labor and the, the the commute. Well, yeah, and and the torment, the racism, the insects, the um, you know. Uh, <laughs> You're the, really selling me on the Virgin Islands. Yeah, so I'm about ready to take well, my you family. know, St. John is where I was, and that's the place to go because it's two thirds National Geographic. Uh, I mean, it's it's park, so it's the least populated. St. Thomas is the place where everybody goes, but. It's, uh, you know, it's a... I've seen pictures of St. John. Yes. I've looked at, I looked at yeah, it. Yeah, St. Like, John's oh. nice. St. Croix's flat, you know. It's oh. an atoll, and uh, St. John is a, a volcano. Volcano. It's a big difference between the flat island and the mountain island. Flat islands are dull. They're nice places to land planes, but that's about the end of it. Yeah. And I think they get wiped. Well, they all get wiped out when the hurricanes come. But I recommend St. John if you have any money. If you don't, and this was back in... I, I've got my, I've got things all crossed up. I went to, yeah, I, I'm close. I just, it, there were just so many places I can't sort it all out. Yeah. But anyway, I spent my whole time there um, just working to and from work. Yeah. And, and, then, the, and the job was, was horrible. I didn't pay very well. And the, the people almost 90% of the people were natives and that was the only work there was. They were very good at what they did. This was their only way up to advance because the, you know, there's no longer sugar plantations, so they either drive a cab or, uh, you know, they get really good at the hotel, whether it's cooking or whatever. Hmm. So I wasn't going to advance, and they resented me. I got along all right, but there was that racial tension that uh, that was never going to be resolved, and I was not interested in resolving it. I didn't want to be a cool white guy. Uh, you know, that I didn't. That's not why I came. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to blend into the jungle and and you know become one with nature and all the rest of that nonsense. So it, but that would, you know, even if I'd had the opportunity, I wouldn't have been able to do it. You know, I'm nearsighted. 
I'm asthmatic. I'm abstract. I'm. I would have been a lousy fisherman. I could have done it, but God, it would have just been. Tarzan had asthma. <laughs> incidentally, <laughs> that's funny. Uh, so after the Virgin Islands, where'd you go? I'm following. I want to follow this train. I'm. I'm fascinated by this. Um, gosh. Like you, you've been to so many places you honestly can't remember. Like all yeah. the different things oh, yeah. you did. Oh yeah. You bounced around a ton. Oh yeah. I mean, I would stay for a week, uh, three months. I stayed in Vermont for a year and a half. I stayed in, um, as I said, Niagara Falls for a year and a half. I lived in Vegas for six months. I lived in L.A. for six months. I I went to school several times, twice at Humboldt State. So I liked Eureka, which is the town south, um, and because it's a, it was a dead town at the time, nobody wanted to live there. The fishing and the forestry had all the the uh, market had dropped out of those things. So they were just these huge Victorian houses with you know heroin addicts in them and people on welfare. Everybody else had left because there was no jobs there. But you had the pulp mill, which sent up this efflux, this yellow. Uh, pungent efflux that just sort of soaked the town in this uh, decrepit fog the whole time. But it was a great place to write because you could get a cheap room. And so I lived there for about a year and a half. And you're, were you working on your writing all this time? Yeah. Oh, at, after the after I put down the drugs and I put down the booze, I became full-time just, I mean, dead obsessed with, with producing good work. And it's like, that, a, like a replacement behavior almost. Like I find that people who put down alcohol or drugs um, can bring a similar level of uh, obsession and dedication to the work, right? Yeah, I think you so. pour all that energy that you I were previously so. devoting to math, to writing. Yeah. Well, it's all about escape and fantasy, right? Because the world doesn't work for me. Fitting myself into the real world doesn't work. So I build these fantasies. And I always have since the time I was a child because I was bullied and because I was sickly and... All the other, you know... You were sickly as a kid? Yeah, oh, yeah. What did, you, what did you have? Just basically breathing problems. Oh, the asthma. Yeah. You couldn't say yeah. sports and all that kind of stuff. Right, and I was no good at it anyway. I mean, I was okay at basketball because I had my parents put up a hoop so I could hit shots. And Yeah. But I would never have been able to make... I tried to make the high school team, but, you know, I wasn't close. I didn't have... I wasn't aggressive enough. I wasn't big enough. Yeah, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't make my team either. Yeah. I wasn't... I, I wanted to be an athlete, but I... Yeah, didn't work out I, I thought, past a certain age. Yeah, I thought basketball might work out for him because it's you know it, for people who aren't super athletes, there's always a niche. You know, I guess there are in in well, you probably not in soccer. Maybe you could be the goalie. I was always the goalie. You're tall. Yeah. What are you? Well, six two. Not, six two. not that tall. Not tall enough to be. Poe is uh, seven feet tall, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> he's being he's being modest. <laughs> uh, so okay, so when you let, let's get to where you decide to put down drugs because that's a big moment that's yeah, a pivotal sure. pivotal moment in yeah, your life right um you, you hit bottom you get to some point where it just becomes intolerable you finally make that choice yeah, you like, just admit it to yourself that you're not going to go anywhere and you're going to be like all these other people if you don't stop now this is the point of no return and that's what you did yeah and you did you quit cold turkey like, yeah. did you go through a oh, program yeah. or did you just oh, say no, no, i'm no. done i was never really I, I you know i come from a long line of genetic alcoholics um even chemical alcoholics What's Ballantyne? Are you Irish or what is it? No, I'm. That's, that's a that's a pseudonym. Oh, it is. I'm a Hughes, which is Irish. Okay, so you're Irish alcoholics. Yeah, Irish alcoholics from a long line of them. Uh, my father was, you know, was notoriously alcoholic, and he finally got his act together in his late fifties. Finally, 
but he was dead set on self-destruction uh, with the cigarettes too. So I had that, you know, I had that script. Um, and I drink now, but I, you know, I got a hold of it. I, I, I mean, you just have to get a hold of it. But as I was saying, I, I was never, I don't think I was a, a classic alcoholic. I was just an escapist. And I, and you get caught in these trajectories. You get caught with this, this tremendous momentum because if you don't, if you just stop what you're doing right now, then you're stuck in a really ugly place. So you either keep your foot on the gas with your pursuit of, of um, euphoria or whatever, and that lifestyle that you have with all your friends, you know, when you get together and you stay up all night and you play cards and you conquer the, all the ideas of the universe and, and, you're, and, and of course, you're, you're diluted, in, especially in when you're using stimulants, whether you're smoking crack or, or you're uh, snorting methamphetamine, that novel is right there. You can see it. Oh, You're yeah. going to write that son of a bitch tomorrow <laughs> in about six hours. Or on like the back of a napkin. Yeah. You got it. I, I did that once. I came home <laughs> and I just I raced. I, I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. God, it was magnificent. I looked at it the next day. It's frightening. It was, it was just, dog just, shit. Yeah. See, this is interesting because I think sometimes you can have good creative. I know I've read about people who have like really productive creative periods or episodes using cannabis you know not so i mean i guess like there are writers who are able to loosen up with alcohol though i don't think there are that many who can no. write drunk it's hard to write drunk no but maybe like a couple glasses of wine or a whiskey or something maybe. like loosens you up a little bit I, I sort of get that but otherwise like i don't know if drugs and creativity i mean there's there's clearly some relationship but the actual work itself i think it's like coffee and tea yeah. Or just... Especially writing. I, I've known uh, quite a few painters. I used to hang around with painters in Eureka because that's, those were the only people who lived in Eureka when, uh, when that economy fell apart because they could go up there and get a cool Victorian studio with nice light and the ocean outside. And so I was hanging around with painters, and we had the similar sort of uh, sensibility mindset because we were poor and we were, you know, we were just up there trying to do something that was... Uh, create something that was worthwhile in our own lives. But there was a lot of, uh, I've seen a lot of uh, drug use in painting and in musician, musicianship. And it works, but it doesn't work for writers. There are, uh, there are some exceptions, but that's because you're trying to be, you're using language, which is, a, there's nothing, it's a, it's a shared medium, you know. And when I say the word, you know, um, missionary or whatever, you know, you have to, well, that was a dumb. That was a dumb example. I don't even know what that word is. I, I think I just made it up. But I was trying to say, if you know, if I say the word, uh, if I say the word, you know, uh, green apple split, I'm I'm obliged to to, to the image that I make. I, I'm not being an artist. If I'm thinking of green apple split as a musician, the interpretations are are, are, are the possibilities are endless, as with painting too. Right. And you can even borrow somebody else's green apple split. If you're if you're if you're doing a painting, you know you can say you can go back to Cezanne's uh, still life, that famous one, and then and then utilize that. But I can, as a writer, I can't do that. I have to be clear, and yep. the person that I'm talking to has to understand exactly what I'm saying, unless I'm snowing them with some bullshit notion of experimental writing or hip beat writing or whatever, which I'm not on board for. I'm a except for this the novel that I just wrote, which was unreliable narrator. I've always been. Uh, 
spent the utmost energy and attention trying to be as clear as possible and as reliable as possible. And that's my obligation as a as a truth seeker, uh, you know, somebody who wants to understand, uh, somebody who wants to get to the bottom of some whys and stuff like that. So you're in your, what, early 30s, late 20s? You make this shift in your life. You really start to focus on writing. When do you become Pope Valentine and why? Like, where does that uh, come from? Let's see, I'm in, uh, I think I'm 37 and I'm not going anywhere because I'm not writing about what's important. I'm just making up stories about people I don't know. Oftentimes, even though I've been to a hundred places and slept in a million beds and had 50 different lousy jobs, I'm writing about stuff that I don't know. So I'm trying to change my luck because Ed Hughes uh, just sounds like the guy you'd borrow a lawnmower from <laughs> and not return it. You know? And so I, and I saw all these people in New Yorker, you know, with these lavish names. Yeah. I worry yeah. about my name all the time. Brad, yeah. that's not that it's not bad. It's a, you know, cause Brad, it's Brad though. Brad's probably Brad. Not. Yeah. You might want to work on that. I got to add a D or something or an umlaut. <laughs> Brad. <laughs> But uh, you pick Poe Valentine. Can you can you break it down? Like why? Yeah. Po oh, sure. Poor, poor Valentine. I, I, you know, I had an, uh, a miserable. Uh, I was just always alone, and the girls would never stay with me, and they'd always treat me badly. So yeah, poor Valentine. But it was also the Poe thing. I mean, it came together in a in a kind of an unusual way. I know it wasn't entirely. Um, I mean, it wasn't a logical process. But I saw the advantage of uh, of a literary sounding name and Edgar Allan Poe and the publisher Ballantyne, the cheap scotch, which sort of gave it that, you know, um, that more, gritty, it's a little gritty. Yeah. And a little bit, uh, so, so I definitely needed that. And then also the anthologies, you know, I've, I was looking down the road, the anthologies are often organized alphabetically and most people don't read the whole thing. They might read the first two or three stories. Oh, Henry awards used to be uh, arranged so that the winner was first and the second place story was third. I mean, second and so on. Um, but, uh, yeah, but, but, but in anthologies, a lot of times the, the, uh, the last name, you know, the, a, the A's will go first. And so you might be able to catch a reader before they lost interest in the book. Cause it probably wasn't very good. Good yeah. anyway. Get up there at the top. Yeah. So when you started working and you're thinking like, okay, I'm going to write as Poe Valentine now, I'm going to try to publish. Was it stories first? Essays? Were you working on a novel? I was working novels, yeah. Strictly novels, short stories were a waste of time. And then I realized that I probably needed to break, break it down to understand form. So I went back to stories. And what did you learn when you say you need to break it down and, and understand form? Uh, just simple stuff, you know, beginning, middle, end. Uh, how to control tone, how to control, how to keep um, the, the, the continuity of all the aspects, especially the characters. Um, and what you're trying to say, you know, and, and to, to, to keep that theme running underneath, to be able to utilize that secondary story, which you almost always have to have. It's there. When do you need it? All of these things that come that anybody can learn, really. I'm not sure if I'm not sure if they're teachable ultimately, because it's not again, it's not a science. You're dealing with something else. But you know, you're dealing with your own personality and you're dealing with the things that I, I speak for myself. I'm dealing with my own personality and the things that I need to learn to do what I need to do, which may or may not have any um, parallel with my 
own the meaning of my existence, but that's how I interpret it. So I have to learn who I am and I have to learn um, how to organize all this stuff that I've experienced in a way that's useful. And that might just be entertainment, but it could also be, uh, I mean, I've had several people write to me to say that I saved them, you know, because I talk about, I talk, I talk a lot about suicide and desperation and failure. And I'm always, uh, and I, uh, and I'm the opposite of a, of a deconstructive writer. I, I'm always moving from disorder to order. I try to move from disorder to order because we all know what disorder is. How do you get order in your life? And this isn't self-help, but this is, uh, for me, these are, this is, these are the, the important whys dealing with the pain of existence. How do and, you deal with it? And, you know, you talk about suicide and, uh, certainly this profession is rife with, uh, examples of that. And I just think humanity, it's one of those things that people don't talk about very much. Uh, just, the, but it's a very human thing. I think to contemplate self-destruction mm-hmm. wouldn't be hard to do. No. And you're putting up with all this suffering in life. It can be very sad and difficult and stressful and exhausting, right? you know? And so I think when you talk about readers writing to you and saying, Hey, you saved me. It's a great relief when somebody says the things that most of us are thinking, but not many of us are talking about. Right. Or are not capable of talking about. Uh, yeah, I, I, I began to write confessionally in in my late thirties and uh, there was an immediate response that I understood was I was doing something that was important that somehow if didn't validate other people's lives, but just sharing it in an honest way and, and, and being able to express it. it takes a long time to understand, you know, why you feel a certain way. There's, it's, it's one thing to confess. It's another thing to confess well. Yes. And to confess artfully. Anybody can confess and anybody can complain. And we're all used to hearing that. But right. If you can do it in a beautiful way and a way that others can take for their own benefit. That's really my primary goal. Um, that's a noble goal. Yeah. Why, it's like an, why it's not? Like, it's like alchemy. Why not? And, 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 but this is what's happened to me with other writers. You know, when I read something and I feel good about myself, even though I'm listening to the blues and I feel good about myself, I realize that they've done some work for me. And right. so that's what I want to do too. Yeah. It's that simple. Yeah. And a lot of times it's just amounts to being honest, but it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. Cause you've got to be beautiful. You've got to be funny. You've got to be able to entertain some ideas. You've got to be able to use other people's thinking in your own way and all of that stuff. So it just takes a long time to organize that. You know, it's just, I guess that's craft. It's also experience. You know, so I was thrown into the sausage grinder or I threw myself into the sausage grinder. And uh, I just hope there's enough fennel in it. You know, I uh... <laughs> it's got to cut it with something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, you know, it's interesting. Uh, multiple times during our conversation, I've heard you talk about how you were writing about things that you didn't know anything about or how you were avoiding talking about things that were most meaningful to you. That's so normal. It's, yeah. it's right there. And like, you know, in, with the benefit of hindsight, it's like, well, of course I should have been writing about this, yeah. but man, we can trick ourselves. Right. You know, like how did you finally get to the point where you're like, Oh, I guess you tried it and you got some feedback and suddenly it was yeah. like, Oh, this that was is- it. I just kept seeing things that I liked and, uh, and things that I didn't like. And I just kept gravitating toward the things that I liked, which was clear, honest, um, confessional, but also, um, you know, beautiful exposition 
And, uh, and I just kept moving toward that. The, the hardest part is, is confessing. Say, for instance, you're confessing to uh, wanting to kill yourself or, or masturbating or something like that. You know, it's extremely, it's extremely embarrassing. But then I actually want to kill myself by masturbating. <laughs> it hasn't been done. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but um, no, I, and I found that when I, after I made the confession that there was, there was hardly any censure at all. I mean, th- th- there was, you know, one, some uh, Yahoo might, you know, mock me, but most of those people don't read anyway. So the people who were reading and who, who understood what I was trying to do, they just they gravitated to it. They, there, was, there was gratitude for, uh, and not just, and again, it's that delicate line between confession, uh, just, you know, saying something for shock value and saying something because it has contextual meaning to existence. And do you, like when you say that you made this shift into writing more confessionally and openly and clearly and honestly, does that mean you were making a shift from fiction to non? Well, that came accidentally. And, uh, and, and actually, it turns out that I'm better at non than I am at fiction, although I continue to write fiction. The greatest books, in my opinion, are fiction. The, the, the books that get the closest to the truth are fiction. The books that do the most work for the soul um, are fiction. Did you have some favorites? I, 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 I was just, I was just um, talking about um, the Christ business, which is what Nathaniel West talks about. And he wrote one of the great L.A. novels. Day of the Locust. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes. And uh, Miss Lonely Hearts is, in my opinion, is a better novel. It's, it is, it is the, uh, the, the best example of the form that I can think of. But he's trying to answer the basic question of human suffering. The most... Uh, pronounced and abject kind of suffering because he's been handed this job as a, as an agony columnist. And he thinks these letters are a joke, you know, um, that he, th- he thinks they're funny. The woman without the nose who wants some advice from me, this is hilarious <laughs> that he meets these people, the cripples. And, yeah. Yeah. And then he realizes that, that he's obliged to. So he has to deal with the Christ business he doesn't want to deal with the Christ business. He doesn't believe it, but he doesn't have any other answers for them. And of course, it's it's a very dark novel. And in the end, he becomes, if you like, I don't know. Nathaniel died very young. He died, you know, he died like a day either before or after. I want to say after uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald. Oh, really? He was down. I want to say El Centro. Either, he was in Southern California, coming or, back from his wedding. Yeah, in he was a, a car. terrible driver. Well, he was coming back from his wedding, but he was also, I think, heading back to L.A. to attend F. Scott Fitzgerald's funeral. Oh, my goodness. That's right. Crashed his car. I remember, yeah. yeah. He was a terrible driver. He was a wonderful novelist. But anyway, so anything. But, but when you read that book, you go, wow, this is, this is horrible. This is, this is like, this is the most depressing thing I've ever. But, but he's actually going to the very heart of, uh, of what I think m- most of us don't want to admit, which is the pain of existence. And it doesn't matter if your dad left you or... Uh, you know, if you're starving to death in the mud or whatever, well, that's a different kind of existence of pain. But for most of us who live in modern Western society and we're dealing with the, with depression and with guilt and with emptiness and and some of us have legitimate problems and some of us are just nagged by the fact that we that that it's not adding up to anything. All of this furious effort to, to you know, to gain, to acquire uh, is just not adding up to anything. It's not adding up to happiness or contentment or any of that right so and i and and so a book like my mother's reading brothers karamazov you know it's about seven thousand pages yeah long. yeah but it's a magnificent novel and he's going after the same thing i mean here's a guy who was uh you know arrested and put in uh, in front of a false 
uh, I mean, he was in a labor camp, and they they were going to execute him, and then they decided to let him go. It was just a joke, and so he had a miserable life. It's a hilarious, hilarious joke, it was, by the yeah, way. It's the just... old labor camp joke. <laughs> yeah, it's like having no nose. It's just really hilarious. But, uh, but anyway, you know, so he spent the rest of his, uh, you know, he wanted to finish that novel because he thought it had answers for humanity. And you're going back to the Christ business. And I'm not, I didn't come here to proselytize, but try to address that basic problem. Now, I don't do this because I write, I write for, I know my audience and they're largely secular. But they also accept uh, notions of, of the divine and of... Uh, and where are you spiritually? Like, do you have a... Are you oh, church I'm, going? No, I'm not. I, I don't have any denomination, but I'm quite... Um, uh, you know, I'm, I believe in a creator, and I talk to the creator on a regular basis. And it, But is it like a Christian context, or is it more just like I a... Would, I would call it a Christian context, yeah. Okay. I would say so. And only because I grow... I, uh, that's the... The cult, uh, the religion of the culture that I grew up in. Yeah, Irish Catholic or what? Well, uh, I don't think my. F- ah, I just come from a long. Uh, on my father's side, the Irish side, uh, just a long history of tepid Protestants. You okay. Know? And do, have you ever had like a mystical experience? In oh, your life? yes. You have? Oh, yeah. Like what? Like when I wanted to kill myself. When it was, it got the worst. I was in my late 30s. I had fallen apart. I'd had a nervous breakdown. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Not good, but, you know. Well, no, I know. No, but actually it was good. It was transitional. It was, that was transformational for me. I didn't realize it was a passage. I just thought I'd fallen apart. But it, I had how, how did it manifest? Like, do you just, like, what is a nerve? I mean, people say I had a nervous breakdown, but, like, what does that actually look like? Uh, for me, um, I had been pushing and pushing and pushing to write this novel that I knew was very good. And I had issued copies of it. I just quit school. I was, uh... but long story short, I saw that the novel. I was working on the novel. I had quit school. I was five thousand dollars in debt. I was, I was going nowhere. I had not published anything. I'd published some poetry and stuff, but I just knew it wasn't going to work. I didn't know it. I didn't know it consciously, but something in me just melted, and I began to cry, and I just fell on the floor, and I wandered the streets, um, crying. And wanting to ask somebody for help, but knowing that they wouldn't understand. Um, so I just, and I wandered, and I, I, I eventually crawled back home, and I lived uh, with my parents up in the bedroom there. I wrote some great stuff while I was up there. I didn't realize it would be any good. I was just writing. But I wanted to kill myself, and it was every second, million times a day. I want to die, I want to die, I want to die, I want to die. And then finally, I was reading Tolstoy. And his confessions. That's later a good, on, good get a read when you're in that mode. Well, right? a- actually, uh, later on in his life, he became you know a lifelong Christian. But uh, I don't know. It's just something triggered, and I just talk. I just talked to the man. I talked to the man, and he, there he was. And you saw the man. Oh well, I saw Christ saved me. He saved me. You know, I said that's all right. Come on. And yeah, so, what did he look like? <laughs> yeah, but Dave Janetta asked me the same question. I went through this on the documentary. It's kind of embarrassing. Um, what documentary? It's called Love and Terror on the House of Plains of Nowhere. It's the documentary about the oh, okay. math professor who yeah. was killed, my neighbor. Uh, it's hard to, hard to describe. Uh, hard to describe. You know, you, you, the, the non-believer wants to materialize things. You know, they want that Rubens painting or, right. you know, the bronze. Looks like Barry Gibb. Yeah. <laughs> so handsome. <laughs> So white. No, he was not anything like that. Not no. anything like that. But I understood. And I, I, don't, I think the physical description is just sort of a distraction. I know people want proof, too. 
Well, but the, I just read, uh, I just read the Michael Pollan book about psychedelics, which like, okay, which tend to occasion mystical experiences. Sure. Oh yeah. And they just, uh, they defy language. That's like a characteristic of a yeah. true mystical experience. Sure. It's hard to, yeah. it's hard to capture it. When you're in contact with it, it's, uh, it's out of, it's out of time. It's out of, it's, it's out of our known realm of, of, of understanding. Did you black out or something? Was it like that? No, 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 no. It was just like a visitation. And then all of a sudden peace. And then I was really good for a year or so. And then I got to realize that that was just sort of a, um, something to keep me going. So, but I stay, I licked my wounds for a long time. And then I went back out in the world. I did not want to and I went to Kansas. I went to Hayes, and I, Hayes, Kansas, and I lived in a residential motel. Got a job at a. Um, Why Hayes, Kansas? I just ended up there. I was trying to end up someplace else. I went to Texas. I was going to go live in East Texas, and yeah. I don't know why I wanted to live in East because I hadn't been there before. Because I wanted, actually, I was going to um, Odessa, which was the armpit of Texas, and I knew it was cheap because I'd seen a, a motel for eleven dollars a night there. That's not bad. Right. Yeah. That's my thing. If I can see a motel for 15 bucks a night, 16 bucks a night, I know that I can afford the rent there. And I knew that I could get a job, but it just didn't work out. And so I just kept drifting north and I ran out of money and I ended up in Hayes, which was all right. I, I, got, I got a speeding ticket in Hayes, Kansas. Did you really? Uh, yeah. On my right way, on 80 there. Yeah. On my way to uh, or 70, isn't it? Oh, is it? I think 70. Okay. Yeah, probably. Because uh, I was on my way to college. I was driving through Kansas from Indiana to Colorado. Right going way too fast got yeah. pulled over in haze yeah yeah that's what i remember so bad memories they've got some of my money <laughs> or some of my parents money i guess back then <laughs> <laughs> so okay so you are in haze kansas you have this mystical experience no i had the ex- experience at uh, but i'm bringing christ with me christ is there with me whenever i need him but then i'm realizing that um that it's a crutch that if I just start talking about this and proselytizing and and uh, and relying, and I'm reading the Bible every night and I'm using all this stuff, but I don't. So I don't want to abandon Christ, but I know that Christ is there, and I just return to you know the previous life. But I know that uh, you know it's going to be okay. It's going to work out all right. Do you have any? I mean, I'm, I'm always curious about like what, like did something neurologically happen? Yeah, sure. You know what I'm saying? Like, what? Sure. Because I want to have one. I want Christ yeah. to come talk to me, yeah. tell me everything's good, and I want to be yeah. at peace for a year. Yeah. Well, you know the line I used. I used this. You know, I just played this song for my mom because uh, I'm reading Leonard Cohen's uh, biography. Fascinating guy. But he wrote the the, the you know many many great songs. Uh, but uh, he talks about Christ and uh, says that only drowning men can see him. And um, I think that's basically it. So you can't, if you want to just throw, you know, if you want to go jump <laughs> off the pier or something and see him, maybe. Right. But I, th- I think he would dis- disregard that kind of contrivance. Yeah, it's got to be real. Yeah, it's got to be real. I was, as bo- I was as low as you could go. I just wanted to die. And, you know, and then I didn't kill myself because I was with my mother and father. What kind of lousy thing is that to do to your mom and dad who lets you move into the room upstairs? And, right, right. And, and they, like, did you... Did you ever come close or is it just like, oh, oh yes. it was oh, all ideation yes. or did you oh, make no, it? No, no, many made, times. Many you made times. attempts. Yeah, many times. Actually, throughout my 30s, I'd, there were a number of you know, knives and bags and pills. and. But, you, but they didn't work? I, I just couldn't go through with it. I'd think about what, basically I thought about what my parents would say, you know? Right. And they had given me so much. And I was making incremental progress. It just, but I just knew it wasn't going to amount to anything. And even if it did, I would still be this, you know, this miserable person burning in constant, the, the, 
the constant hell of the earth. I just didn't want any part of it. Right. You know, and, and it wasn't you- about being successful or having, and, or, and I didn't really want to go through my life alone either. But I, although I had acknowledged that, you know, because there was a lot of people who do that, and that was, you know, it was just apparently my fate. But, but that changed. That changed, yeah, uh, uh, almost as if somebody had engineered it. I certainly didn't feel like I was part of that whole thing and childbirth and all that. Uh, reuniting and having a stable relationship with a woman. That was just so far out of anything that I could understand. It was almost as if I'd been guided through it. I don't think I was capable of it. I was such a, uh, you know. Did you, tell, a, did you tell your parents about this? You're like, by the way, I've had like a mystical experience. Uh, like, I don't think I did. No, I don't think they would have really cared. They're, is your mom aware? Oh, I just threw my pen. Well, but, I, I've talked about it before, but they, you know, they regard it. They're, they just regard it as, as, as most people who are non-believers regard it, you know, some kind of neurological, well, you just had a hallucination, you know, <laughs> you know whatever. And that's fine. Yeah. I, it doesn't matter to me. I don't want to convince people of it, but I, but they do ask. And so I tell them. Sure. It's a rare experience. Yeah. I don't think a lot of people have that. Right. That's cool. Yeah. And it, and it really did change things. Oh yeah. Like there's the before that and there's the after that for you. Sure. And like your creative life at that point started to. I had already become an artist somewhere along the way. I don't know how that happened. But the but I but I was interested in being a full human being. I didn't just want to be a really, you know, I didn't want to be like um somebody so Were you publishing prior to the nervous breakdown? I was publishing. Yeah, I had just started to 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 publish things. Oh, okay. But it but it wasn't there was no future there. And I didn't really care if there was a future. And I didn't really care if I was writing well. I didn't think I was writing well. Nobody was taking my stuff except for the one magazine, which was The Sun. And they were paying me 200 300 bucks for stories. So uh, I just thought somebody felt sorry for me, and this was my consolation prize, and, you know, and I would just write a few things. But, you know, then a few prizes came along, then the fan letters, and then contra- a, contra- a book contract. And I was as surprised as anyone, especially since it came so late, because, you know, how old were you when you when that stuff started to happen? Like I was forty-two when Houghton Mifflin signed me to a multiple book contract, but that that blew up. Yeah, as they sometimes do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I just you know I just I wasn't ready yet. I still I mean I was a slow grower. I'm as green. I was as green as as green could get. Yeah. Maybe because I, some force wanted me to to build me from scratch, and that force could have been me, but I don't know how. Um, I would have decided that. So, and now you're in Nebraska. You've right. li- you've li- it's called Shadron? Shadron. Shadron, Nebraska. Mm-hmm, yeah. how, how long have you been there and how did you wind That's up 17 there? 17 years. Wow. Came there in 94, just drifting. Uh, got a job at, uh, at a hotel as a cook. Hated it. Uh, saved enough money to get out. Went down to Arkansas to uh, interview a friend of mine who was a pool hustler who was going to die. He'd spent most of his life in, in uh, penitentiaries and detention and jail and whatever fascinating guy great pool player and i thought i'd write a book about him um and i think i ran out of money there and that's when i went uh i went back where is shadron is that like it's in it's in western nebraska it's about uh 60 uh, 90 miles south of rapid city south dakota about five hours uh east of denver okay it's 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 remote it's very remote how many people live there about 5,000 people. Okay. Yeah. So I went, you, you sort of know everybody. I do now, yeah. Oh, well, they know me. 
You're still writing, they asked me. Yeah. You know. Town author. Yeah, right. Wow. Yeah, the writer. I was the cook for a long time, and then, then they got adjusted to the... Well, then when the, the math professor disappeared, and he, I think he was murdered, and the book came out, and I wrote about all of the, their town and their people and all the people who might have had something to do with his, his death. Then I was on the map. And put, yeah, put it, and you put the place on the map. Well, yeah, and, he, and I pissed a lot of people off too, but that's important. You know, to be famous, you have to... Well, I'm, I'm locally famous. But also to like, if you're going to cover something like that and write about it honestly, you're going to ruffle somebody's feathers. Oh yeah, you have to really deliberately ruffle people's feathers. I was, I knew the risk, uh, the and I, and I just I went all out. I didn't pull any punches. I was as fair. I was overly fair, and some of my um, creative, uh, I mean, character descriptions were over complimentary. But I also made sure to describe something negative about everybody, any major character. Hmm. So I, you know, I tried to be as accurate as possible. I didn't ask anybody for permission. I just wrote the thing the way I thought it should be written. The only thing I asked is if they wanted their name changed. You're going to be in a book. Do you want your name changed? Do you want your real name? And I don't think they took me seriously, but then they realized the impact of this thing because it's now, you know, it's, it's got a life of its own, and maybe we'll get some, uh, we'll get some justice for Stephen. Well, I'll tell you what. This has been a fascinating conversation. I'm so pleased to get a chance to meet you in person, I, and, and uh, I thank you for making time in your schedule to come over and talk to me. Yeah, well, it, this was fun. I'm, I'm glad you had me, and uh, and I hope that uh, people don't get too bored with all my, my blather. I don't think that's going to happen. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, there he is, folks. That's Poe Ballantyne. His new novel is called Whirl Away. It is available now. From Hawthorne Books, that's Poe Ballantyne. He's got a Facebook page. I don't think he's got a website. I'm looking online. Nor do I think he's on... I don't think he's on Twitter. I think it's Facebook or nothing. Or just go get his book. It's a novel. It's called Whirl Away. Get your copy. Very interesting life Poe Ballantyne has led. That was interesting, right? Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to the band Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to uh, get the Other People app, you can do that. That's free. Go get the Other People app. If you would like to support this show, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you would like to write to me, share your thoughts, you can do so by emailing me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. So... I'm back. I need to get back in the rhythm. There's something weird about me that, uh, you know, when I go on a trip and then I come back, I feel like I've lost my rhythm. I want to get my rhythm back. I'm a creature of habit. I think I might be happiest when I'm just in a, in a routine. What does that say about me? Did I all, was I always like this? I like doing work. <laughs> I like to go for walks in nature. I really think I could live a very simple existence and be perfectly happy. Not that I live some hugely complicated existence, but I'm talking about a level of austerity that I think most people would turn away from. Or maybe I'm fooling myself. I have been known to do that before. Once or twice. (laughs) 